Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you're not bored of my voice after this episode, why not come across and join me and some of the finest product thought leaders and practitioners in the world on onenightinproduct.com, where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or follow the podcast on social media, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about accessibility, or A11Y to its friends. We talk about the importance of designing our products to be accessible to all, regardless of disability or impairment, and wonder why in the year 2022 we're still having to persuade people that this is an important thing to think about. We talk about some of the biggest accessibility problems, why it's not just about screen readers, why some tech solutions are just well-meaning attempts to gloss over product development failures, and ask whether it's really fair to place the burden of thinking about accessibility on the people that are affected by it the most. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Holly Schroeder. Holly's a UX researcher and passionate accessibility advocate who wants everyone involved in product development to use their powers for good. Holly says she recently had brain surgery with no drugs and lived to tell the tale, proving that she's completely unstoppable. You absolutely do not want to mess with her, not least because she's also a semi-professional arm wrestler. She's now going over the top to push good UX practices as a senior UX researcher, mentor and recent contributor to the new book, 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know. Hi Holly, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. That may be my new favorite intro. There you go. I should have got the wrestling music going as well. I'm hoping that one day we can have an arm wrestle in person. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But first things first, you are a senior UX researcher working in health tech. So what sort of problems are you solving and what sort of things are you researching? Oh, sure. So the company that I work for has a product and an app that goes with the product. And the focus is helping people in the cardiovascular healthcare space. So people who have cardiovascular conditions. So is that, that sounds like it's not just software. I mean, it sounds like there's probably some hardware in there as well. Are you doing research across all these different types of products? Or are you sticking very specifically, say, with digital products or very specifically with hardware? Or I mean, how does that work? It's a little bit of a mix of both. A different team does all the hardware testing and that sort of thing before it even gets to me because it's a medical device. There's, you know, regulations around those sorts of things. It's a different kind of rigor for that type of research, whereas I'm focused on the user experience. Right. But I am asking them about their experiences primarily with the software. But it's not exclusive of the hardware. And your UX researcher, I understand from our previous discussions that you've got like a separate design team as well. So I guess one interesting question is how you interface with A, the design team and B, with the product team in general, because it's not always an easy relationship between UX and product, if you listen to some people talking about it at least. So is that something that you feel like you've worked out a really good relationship? Like, How do you see the handoffs and, and how do you manage those handoffs between different parts of the organization? Maybe I'm really lucky, but I haven't <laughs> found that to be the case. I think that there is always a bit of tension between user needs and business needs and, and making sure that you're meeting both. I mean, as a user researcher, my mind is always kind of on the people. 
And I want to make sure that we are doing our absolute best and due diligence. And sometimes we don't get to go as far as I would like to because the business <laughs> needs dictate that we need to move along now. But, you know, I'm pragmatic, so I get it. <laughs> and I also think that relationships with the various stakeholders on a project are it's important to have good rapport, good relationships. And I spend a lot of time building those relationships and investing in them because the team dynamic does matter and it does impact how quickly, how efficiently things get done. No, absolutely. But let's think about that relationship building for a second then, because I know that you're also an active mentor, you're involved in mentoring. And I was wondering if that was something that was kind of pretty local and focused on UX, UX research in your local area? Or is that something that's kind of a bit more international when you're talking to people around the world? Like, how does that mentoring work? And, and also, given that mentoring is quite a hot topic at the moment, like, how's that? How's it going? Like, how's that working out for you? I absolutely love it. I do it both ways. So I'm a co-president of a local organization for experienced design professionals. So not just UX, but service design and really anybody who's interested in the experienced design space, customer experience. So I, I'm co-president of that organization and we definitely encourage mentorship. So mentees will sometimes come to me through that channel. I also was mentor teacher at a program called Code Girl which I also went through, it's a boot camp, a UX boot camp run by a nonprofit here in town. I don't mentor for them anymore. I'm no longer working with them. So I wanted to continue mentoring. They don't have a UX program anymore. I wanted to continue mentoring. So I signed up for ADP list. It's Alpha David Paul list awesome design people, I think. And I'm able to mentor people all over the world. Oh, wow. I guess if you're opening it up to the entire world, you must get some really interesting nuggets of insight from the state of UX in all these other places as well. Like, is it something which is fairly universal? Like, are there kind of universal problems and concerns that the mentees are bringing up around the world? Or is that something that where you've been kind of surprised at some of the feedback that you've got from some of these other places that maybe you haven't been to visit or don't have so much experience with? I think much like many things, we're more the same than we are different. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you think about basic human wants and needs and Maslow's hierarchy, and it rings true whether you live here or you live in Iraq. So, I wouldn't say that the things that people bring to me are really outside of what I might experience. One of the most common things that people will come to me and ask about is transitioning from an academic background to a corporate setting, because I did that. Right. Well, that's an interesting move, actually. I mean, going from academia, and I've certainly worked with academics in the past, from maybe more from a data science perspective or user research. Actually, yeah, user research. Like we, I worked with one guy once who was very 
had a lot of history and background in you know that phd in interaction design and stuff like that he was really good at trying to work out the best way to ask people questions it was a market research company but one of the things that you sometimes see when you're looking at people who have come from academia is you get this it's kind of a cliche but it also does happen this idea that they can kind of struggle to make that move into corporate life and the different expectations and the different kind of benchmarks and all of the things that come with actually working for a big power hungry money hungry company like how was that then as a transition for you was it a pretty straightforward one or did you have a lot to learn as you transitioned across I think because I started in corporate I had an advantage in knowing the language of business before I got there right because the language of education, higher ed in particular, is all its own. There are words <laughs> that you'll hear at a university that you will never hear anywhere else. <laughs> and it has its own kind of unique power structure that, again, really doesn't exist anywhere else. And so if that's the only bubble you've ever existed in, it could feel, you could really feel like a fish out of water, right? But I had spent 10 years working for a promotional marketing company before I transitioned to higher ed. Oh, right. So you bounced out and back in again then. Exactly. And I also, my master's is in nonprofit management, which is really just an MBA for the charitable sector. So I also had that background. I think the biggest challenge for anyone transitioning from academia to corporate is just the the biggest task for anyone is taking your CV, making it a resume, and then <laughs> translating what you do into UX speak or product speak. Because, I mean, let's be real, UX stole most of its stuff from Somology. So we got it from <laughs> their world, right? We got it from their world, and then we named it something else. It's a very controversial take, but I'm I'm here for it. Well, I mean, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, and often you will see job postings for people in UX, and they want you to have a background in psychology, anthropology, sociology. Yep. So I don't think I'm imagining it. <laughs> <laughs> But you also recently, as I found when I looked on your LinkedIn, contributed to a book, uh, 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, Collective Wisdom from the Experts. Now, I'm assuming that that means that you're one of the experts. So what's the story behind the book? And also, more importantly, what was your contribution to it? So my chapter is on why accessibility is everyone's responsibility. Yep. Well, that's a good segue then. But um, before we talk about that, like, so the book then has, I guess, 97 things so is that like 97 different contributors or to some exactly so there's literally 97 contributors all talking about different stuff your stuff was on accessibility but how did you get involved in that book in the first place like did you know the person that was pulling it together or was it like a community project like how did that all come together no i did not know the <laughs> editor that was putting the project together it came to me through a series of referrals. They were looking for someone to write a chapter on accessibility. A friend was writing a chapter on diversity and recommended me. Excellent. 
Well, let's talk about accessibility then, and then hopefully someone can come and pick up the book afterwards as well and deep dive into it. Because I know, and obviously we first met on Twitter, talking about diversity in product design. You're very active on Twitter talking about issues around that as a general concept. And you're really passionate about advocating for accessible design, you know, making sure our products are usable by everyone. Now, I'm going to say probably naively that that doesn't sound like a controversial goal these days. It's like we've all been building digital products for quite a while now. And I'd like to assume that everyone should at least be aware that some people might be, for example, I don't know, visually impaired or have motor issues or any of the other things that could affect how they use, say, a website. So why do you think we're still in a situation in 2022 where people aren't paying attention to even the most basic principles of accessible design? Ooh, that, you know, that's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) I think that I wish I could give you a really concise answer to that question. I think that we're still in the phase, and I know this to be true, where You know, to me, accessibility is a topic that I hear discussed frequently, but I know that my experience is very biased because of the channels I choose to tune into. I know because I'm a researcher and I test user interfaces that most people have no idea what an accessibility icon is or what might be behind something labeled accessibility. So there's still quite a lot of work to do. Web AIM, which is a nonprofit that kind of keeps an eye on these things, in their most recent audit of a million homepages, found that something like only around 3% of them were accessible. I mean, if you... That's a bad number, right? That's not a good number. If you, if you think about, if we took the example in physical space and you thought, okay, we're going to remove all the things that are accessibility considerations for people with disabilities from public buildings. So no more curb cuts, no ramps, no elevators and tall buildings. Sorry, have to use the stairs. All of those things, all the braille on the elevator buttons, we removed all of that except for 3% of the buildings, I think people would be pretty upset. Yeah, I think they'd be pretty upset too. But if we then extrapolate then from the example in the physical space that you just mentioned, so for example, removing all of the curb cuts and removing the braille from the buttons and all of the things that, that you could remove from the physical space and then try to translate that to the digital space. So let's imagine, for example, when we're talking about a website or some kind of online application that you log into via a browser, what are some of the top offenders that you see out there when it comes to accessible design failures these days? And let's call them failures. It's not that they're just an accident. You know, they've, someone's failed to do them, right? So what are they mainly failing to do? Or what are some of the top contenders for things that they're failing to do? Yes, I will tell you. But I want to, can we bounce back just for two seconds? We can. What I want to follow up with is that I think one of the reasons that it persists in digital space, the unintended benefits for abled people don't have the same kind of visibility that they do in physical space. Like someone who's pushing a stroller benefits from 
ramps, curb cuts, elevators, those sorts of things. And it's very clear that it's helpful to people abled and disabled. Yeah. The things that are done in for accessibility on the web, even if they are beneficial to an abled user, they may not be aware that that was really intended to help a disabled user. So I think that's where part of the problem lies. As far as the big offenders go, when WebAAM did their report, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I feel like it was alt text on images. I mean, they were really simple things to fix. Yep. It was like alt text on images. Oh, like links instead of saying having not having meaningful links. So, you know, if you have a hot link that says here, yeah, that's not super helpful for someone who uses a screen reader. It should be the name of what it is so they know what they're about to open. You know, so it would say podcast transcript instead of here. Yeah. So, you know, it's in semantic heading. So just the order that a screen reader is going to navigate through the page, just truly just sloppy code that, (sighs) you know, it's like if you thought about it in terms of it's essentially the same thing as doing an outline in a Word document and somebody just haphazardly using the heading features. Like, oh, I'm going to use heading three here, heading two here, heading one there, and skip a heading number. It just doesn't have a logical order. So then, you know, an assistive tech tool like a screen reader doesn't know where it's supposed to go. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had to do stuff for very specifically to test stuff on screen readers before for previous jobs where we were very hot on that stuff. And I will say that I'm not visually impaired. So I've got the luxury of being able to just see when these things are working or not working and what might be throwing them out. But I will also say that every single time I tried to run a screen reader on basically anything, it was a horrible experience for me. So I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like for someone who doesn't have that luxury of being able to go about a different route. Is it primarily then screen readers that we're talking about, though, when we're talking about accessibility? I mean, things like alt text and meaningful names for links and semantic markup so that the computer can navigate it, they all sound very screen reader specific. But are there any other things that maybe people aren't thinking about, like aside from screen readers that could still come under the banner of accessibility and things that they should really think about when they're looking at this stuff? Oh, absolutely. Those were just among the top offenders. Yeah. So, for instance, prior to my brain surgery, the reason I had my brain surgery is I have a degenerative disease that causes tremors. Yeah. And so my hand tremor would get, my right hand tremor would become so extreme sometimes that I would have to be keyboard only. I couldn't use a mouse. Yeah. Password masking is the bane of my existence. Right. If you have tremors, trying to accurately type when you can't see is a really nasty challenge. It's a game nobody wants to play. I'm like, can I just have the eyeball? Like, just give me the choice. I just want the option, right? And so 
And even still, post-surgery, I still get locked out of my accounts like once a week. Some account somewhere locks me out because I've mistyped a password because I can't see it. Yeah. And so things like that, that has nothing to do with screen readers, touch targets being too small, particularly on mobile devices. Yeah. I mean, for somebody who's got a tremor disorder like I do, that is maddening. And that's something that affects, you know, I'm very young for someone who has that. My tremors look very similar to what someone would expect. You would expect to see who has Parkinson's disease. Like, that's just what's most familiar that I can think to compare it to. Yep. It's not the same disease, but it looks like it at a glance. You know, people as they age often acquire tremors. And so, you know, we're very dependent on our digital devices, even in the senior population. My mom's 75. She has a tablet. She has a laptop. And she has a smartphone. And she uses all of those things. And you're, it's not just your vision, but your dexterity and your fine motor skills diminish over time. So that, and some people like me just have those conditions anyway. Yeah, for sure. There's all kinds of different ways. Like for me, password masking, touch targets, mobile keyboards. I just, like there's days where I just want to throw my phone. <laughs> Talk to text is like laughable at times. You know, I end up having to do more corrections and then I accidentally hit something else instead of the back button, which makes me have to do more corrections. And you can see how this can be a very frustrating loop. Yeah, I can't imagine it's much fun. I also remember recently seeing some commentary on the Wordle stuff that everyone was putting on Twitter and how screen readers were basically reading out like green square, green square, gray square, green square, like basically 40, 50 times or whatever, whenever someone was getting to that part of their Twitter. So I can imagine, as you've put it, that it could be a maddening experience. Yeah, I would definitely say filter out Wordle if, <laughs> if you're a screen reader user. And the same thing every time I see a tweet where someone's got 20 emojis in a row, I think, oh, geez, the poor person who's using a screen reader is probably screaming right now because yeah. most of the emojis are not what they we think they are. <laughs> like the one that everyone uses for, you know, thoughts and prayers is folded hands. Yep. Who decided that? I have no idea. It looks like praying hands to me, too. But <laughs> if you put three of them in a row, they're going to get folded hands, folded hands, folded hands. Yep. Again, very frustrating. But some people out there might be tempted to use an accessibility solution known as an overlay, where they can just dump some JavaScript on their site, fire and forget, check the box and move on. Now, I'm aware that the use of these overlays isn't universally popular in the accessibility design community. But what's the problem with using overlays or what can the problems be with using overlays? I think like anything that is meant to not truly solve the problem, but be a workaround is the root issue. Root cause is not being addressed. Right. And so if you back up a step and you think about like, what's the issue here? The issue is that the code 
is not written in such a way that it's accessible as it can be. It would be nice if it was possible to be 100% accessible. It's not. You know, we hope people meet the minimum standards. WCAG is a place to start. Yeah. You know, the standards asserted by various government bodies and are a place to begin. Ultimately, you should be testing with users, including disabled users, yeah. so that you can really find out what do our people say? Because ultimately, that's what matters most, right? Like, yay, we can check a box, but what do the people say? Yeah. So if you go back another step, why do people not know how to code accessibly? There's a gap in the education of people who are learning to do development work. And we need to address that. That's where the true problem lies is I did a web development boot camp. Not a word was spoken about accessibility in the entire thing. And that's very common. Very few people are taught anything about accessibility when they're learning how to do development. Right. So it's kind of like an afterthought that gets slapped on at the end if it gets slapped on at all. Right. So it doesn't matter. You know, it's if you are um, any patch and repair job is only ever going to be that good. Yeah. If you don't get to the root cause, it's a temporary fix at best. I mean, I think for some people, the features may meet their needs to a certain extent. Some are better than others. Like, you know, I, I understand the attractiveness of those kinds of products, obviously. It seems like it's, wow, this is going to solve everything. But I guess my personal philosophy is, let's dig deeper. Why are we even here? Yeah. Why do we have this problem? We need to evangelize. We need to make space for people to learn how to do it correctly to begin with. No, absolutely. But some people in this lean startup world will be sitting there saying, well, we've got to move fast and break things, build MVPs, fail fast, all that stuff. And they'll just sit there and say, well, you know, this stuff's too hard, or they don't have the time or the money, or maybe they'll just fix it later when they've got product market fit and all that jazz. Now, I'm pretty sure you won't agree with that. And I definitely don't agree with it either. But what would you say to someone if they tried to make that argument or excuse to you? I mean, it's a choice. You can certainly do that. I think that, and I say the same thing about research, go fast and break things. It's, it's a choice. It's a decision that you can make. But if we maybe slow down just a little bit, and I'm not saying that we have to slow down to stop, but <laughs> if we slow down and we dig a little bit deeper, the return on the investment is going to be far greater. So instead of failing fast five times, how about we just slow down a little bit one time? <laughs> <laughs> but how much of this is down to a typical cliche of a bunch of white, non-disabled tech bros starting up a startup, thinking everyone's exactly like them, not even considering alternative viewpoints and basically just skimping on things like accessibility because they didn't even think about it. Like, is that a fair cliche? I wouldn't say it's unfair. <laughs> That's very diplomatic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that 
you know, disability is still very othered in most cultures, in all of them that I'm aware of. I'm not going to say all because I don't know every culture, but, you know, in all the cultures that I've been exposed to, and I have a pretty hefty background in cultural anthropology as well, being disabled is othered. And it's something that people are not comfortable talking about. And they talk about it in the same way that they talk about other things that they perceive to be taboo in some way. Yeah. So even if they know someone has a disability or is disabled, they'll add on some sort of qualifier like, oh, well, they have X, but they're not like most people with it. And so that stigma and that bias makes it seem like disabled people are somewhere else. Yeah. And we're not. We're right here. We're literally 20% of the world population. And there's a whole bunch of different ways you can be disabled. And a lot of them are not visible. Yeah. So, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. That's like saying gravity doesn't exist because I can't see it. (laughs) Or the world's flat because, oh no, let's not go there. I uh, Yeah, I was going to say, let's not go down the flat earth path. (laughs) I'm pretty confident it's not, though, just in case anyone's wondering where I stand on that topic. I feel very confident about that. Yeah, I I think I am too. So sometimes when people are confronted with that fact, they'll come out of a statement like, hey, well, maybe we just need to get more diverse people into the room when the decisions are made. Like, let's get more visually impaired people in. Let's get more people of condition X in because that's the way that we can ensure that people Uh, fully represented and that we can cover those issues up front because people will be thinking about them. Now, I'm always going to be in favour of increasing the diversity and the mix of a team because I think that that's one of the most important things you can do just in general product or otherwise, you know, to get underrepresented people more opportunities. But isn't it just a massive cop-out to put all the responsibility of fixing accessibility issues on the people that are suffering from them the most? Yes, and thank you for noticing. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think the most powerful teams are diverse teams because you have the benefit of the multitude of experiences. And, you know, one brain can't think of all the things, right? So I do believe that. But just as much as I think as a white person, it's not Black people's job to educate me on Black history. Yeah. Like, I can do my white people work. I don't <laughs> think that it's disabled people's job to educate abled people on disability necessarily. I think that abled people can do their abled work too. That doesn't mean that I think it's not okay to ask questions or any of that. That's, I don't mean to imply that at all. I'm super open to conversation. But I think it's fair to ask people to do their due diligence instead of saying, oh, well, Holly's disabled, just ask her. Yeah. You know, like, well, so why do I get pushed to the front of the line every time the topic of anything remotely disability is in the room? Like, (laughs) other people could benefit from knowing about it as well. So I'll give you an example 
of advocacy in the workplace that I really appreciated. When I started at the company that I work for, they didn't use live transcript in their Zoom meetings. So I asked that, you know, folks could turn it on. So because I'm also hard of hearing. And even with hearing aids, I, you know, with Zoom, forget it. Yeah. Right. I just need, I need the captions, period, end of story. So my boss said, I'll submit that request for you. I'll make sure it gets taken care of. And someone else made a comment to her about like, oh, well, couldn't Holly do that? She's like, yeah, she could, but no, I'll do it. Yeah. Like she recognizes that it takes a lot of emotional, mental, physical energy to show up and be openly disabled. Yeah. And as an ally, that's a, you know, to me, I was so grateful. And she's like, are you kidding? That's such a small thing. Not a big deal. But it meant a tremendous amount to me that she made the time and made sure it happened. Like, so to lighten that load for me was huge. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely important for allies, as you say, and advocates to to come from everywhere and to make sure that people aren't just kind of left on their own. Because I think your point earlier was really interesting as well, this idea, of course, and it's not controversial opinion, it's definitely true that disability is still very other than seen as a defect in many ways by many people. Like, it sometimes feels that it's difficult for certain types of people to empathize with that in the slightest. Mm-hmm. which is obviously not a good thing at all and something that we should always challenge. But as with many cases of advocacy or allyship, it feels like sometimes having the kind of backup of people that aren't in that situation, it kind of emphasizes the message rather than it being, oh, well, that's just what Holly would say, which obviously would be a ridiculous thing for them to say, but I'm not sure that no people would say that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. And I think you brought up a really good point, too, and one that I find extremely frustrating. And it's the notion that disabled is less than somehow. Yeah. That if you are a person who is disabled or has a disability, that by default, you are going to perform in a way that is less than your peers who are abled. Yeah. And that is patently false. Yeah. It just is not true. And I can give you an example. I've had multiple traumatic brain injuries and I have some working memory problems as a result. And I went and did some follow up testing a few years ago. And the person who did the testing said, Holly, I just want to let you know that, yes, you have a disability but you actually test higher than average in your peer group for people without a disability. That doesn't you mean go. you don't, don't have a disability. That just means you have really great coping strategies. Yeah. So I outperform my peers in a category where I have a disability. So it can be exactly the opposite of what people assume. Yeah, no, absolutely. And hopefully we can change people's attitudes one step at a time 
But based on your experience and what you see online and maybe from some of the mentoring that you're doing and the discussions that you're having in general, do you think that accessibility efforts are getting better, worse, or kind of just staying the same? I think that it's slow forward progress. There was a time when I heard practically no one talking about it. Yeah. And when I felt like as a person with multiple disabilities that I had to hide in a closet, revealing that would put my livelihood at risk. And that became so psychologically painful for me that I got to a point where I decided whatever that risk was, I had to take it because that kind of mental prison was not an option for me anymore. Right. And so I had like the equivalent of a coming out for being disabled. You know, that's the most similar thing I can kind of equate it to coming out in a very public way about being disabled. And I, I, I'm not saying it's the right choice for everyone. I think people have to do what's right for them. Yeah. But that was the right choice for me. And I have zero regrets. And I think not everyone who is disabled or who has a disability is in a position where they can be outspoken for whatever reason. That's none of my business. But I'm in a position where I can. So I do. Uh, Makes a lot of sense. And like you say, not for everyone, but obviously if they can, then maybe that could work for them as well. Now, I'm sure there are many ways to answer this question and many things people could fix. But if you had one piece of advice for a product designer looking to improve or take steps to improve the accessibility of their product in general, what would you advise them to do as a first step? And I'm assuming it's not using a, an overlay. I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're testing with real users who are not also stakeholders. Yeah. I mean, by default, if 20% of humans have a disability, even if you're not purposely trying to screen in people with disabilities, they're going to pop up in your studies. It would be preferable if you purposely screened them in, obviously. But even if you don't, be looking for signals that this may be because of low vision. You know, I'll give you an example. I had a product I was working on and when I tested it, we were using font that met WCAG requirements, but consistently users were saying the font wasn't large enough. So hooray for checking the box, but (laughs) it didn't meet the needs of our users. And Largely because of their age, they were middle-aged and older. Well, between 40 and 42, if you're not there yet, pick out your bifocals now because you're going to need them. (laughs) Almost everyone gets a pair of readers sometime between 40 and 42. So even without purposely screening in people with low vision, they turned up. Yeah. So you can still be looking you know, being aware and sensitive to those things, even if you have the constraints where you're not able to 
be intentional. You know, you have business constraints where you're not able to be intentional about recruiting people from the disabled community. I get that people's hands get tied at work and it stinks. And you don't get to always do the research the way that you would like to, or you don't have the money to do the way that you would like to. But the disabled folks are there. It just makes sure you're listening. Excellent advice. And where can people find out more in general about general accessibility issues? I mean, you've mentioned a few organizations already, but like, is there like a place that you would recommend that people go to to try to start to immerse themselves and do some of that learning that we were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think one that's like pretty friendly for new users is DeCue University. They have some accessibility stuff. WebAIM is very like new user friendly on the topic. And honestly, just pick one thing and learn about it and start doing it. Yeah. If every person was like, okay, this is going to be my accessibility initiative, my personal contribution. If everybody just picked one thing and we all picked away at it collectively, the ripple effect would be a tsunami. Yeah, it's kind of iterating towards success, which is something that all these lean advocates should be all about that, shouldn't they? So, Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm pretty pragmatic by nature. And of course, ideally, I would love for things to just like magically be perfect for disabled users. I'm one of them. I would love to never be locked out of an account because of password masking. Yeah. Or I would like to kill all the CAPTCHAs dead in their tracks for the rest <laughs> of my life. I never want to solve another CAPTCHA puzzle again for the same reasons, you know? But I'm realistic. It will be an iterative, gradual process. We will learn more, know more, do better. Learn more, know more, do better. It's literally that simple. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, I have to go learn how to be an accessibility expert. No, I mean, there is a mountain of stuff to learn. I still have volumes of things to learn. I'm never going to run out of stuff to learn on the topic. Pick one thing that seems kind of interesting to you and go deep. Excellent advice. And where can people find you after this if they want to chat to you about any of this stuff, any of the issues that we've talked about today, or just catch up or maybe even find a little bit out about the book? Oh, sure. So the easiest place to find me and the place where I'm responsive most quickly is Twitter. It's 314UXHolly, H-O-L-L-Y. And I also have a, I call it my little free library in the spirit of little free libraries. I have one in front of my house. And I have one as my pinned tweet on Twitter that has, I guess it's about a thousand resources now for UX and accessibility. That's my pinned tweet. Well, it says a hundred plus, and I guess a thousand is more than a hundred. So you've obviously been adding to that quite a lot over the last six months or so. Yeah, I, um, after I had brain surgery, it was like my pet project and I really leaned into my ADHD flow on that one. There you go. 
Well, that's fantastic. And obviously, I'll make sure to link that in and hopefully people can come across, connect with you, have a chat or get a bit inspired by some of your resources. Uh, well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously, really glad you took the time to talk about some really important issues. And hopefully we can help people at least think a little bit about some of them. Obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. This is fantastic. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.